Awesome. Well, uh, you know, good morning, everybody. This is uh, this is Brian Carpenter, and I'm I'm here with my co-host. Hey, this is Brent Piatti. Morning, Brent. And uh, morning. today, you know, it's um, I think it's something like the 28th of August. Again, I don't care what Fred Nick says. We're gonna say the date because nothing's timeless. Um, and um, you're on the hot out. Uh, we're on the hot out today. We have our guest Randy Bias, and um, the goal of today's show. We're going to get a little dirty with um, Platform 2, Platform 3. You might want to call it Mode 1, Mode 2. We're going to talk about what those names mean. Um, and really, the goal of the show is to kind of talk about you know people transitioning or thinking about transitioning from Platform 2 to Platform 3, um, where the pain is, you know, how you can do it right or wrong. And um, you know, we're going to get some hot opinions about how, how you're doing it wrong today. Um, and then we may get into a little bit about what Randy's doing as far as converged infrastructure and other other reference architecture type conversations if we have time. So again, welcome to the show, Randy. Thanks for having me. And uh, you know, for those who may not know Randy, we know him. He's world famous here. Um, Randy is a VP of Technology in the Immersion Technology Division. Is that still your title? Yes. Uh, I know we I know we changed titles by the day, and you know, ETD is a is a is a big part of EMC. We've had a couple of other people on from ETD. I think one of your one of your good um, one of your good friends and tree shakers, Josh Bernstein. I just found out. I didn't realize how closely linked you guys were. Uh, Josh and I share a similar worldview and spend a lot of time talking to each other. Yes, that's true. Yeah, we're excited. He's a he's one of my favorite guests. I I hate to pick. It's like picking picking your favorite child, but I'm going to say it. He's one of my favorite guests. I don't know about you, Brent. I certainly enjoyed him. I, I think we, we got a lot of feedback on that on that podcast, too. And a lot of it had to do with the the drone racing. Yes. Not necessarily the technical content. <laughs> Randy, are you, a, are you a quadcopter pilot? I am in the throes of getting – I've just started to, to do that. I'm not nowhere near as advanced as Josh's. I just have a little kind of nano quadcopter, and I'm still trying to keep it from um, killing my cats or banging into the walls egregiously. <laughs> We need to get you one that can fly your cat around because that's what would be really fun. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that my cat would love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Randy, you you come to us through an acquisition uh, with cloud scaling, uh, where you were the CTO and CEO. Uh, tell us tell us what you can a little bit. I mean, if there's secrets, we understand. Um, but you know, tell us what you can about cloud scaling. Um, how the acquisition was. You know, how talking to EMC was. What your vision was versus where you are today. Uh, well, I'll try to keep the story short. Um, cloud scaling was one of the leaders in the OpenStack space. We were one of the first 25 companies to basically publicly support OpenStack when it launched in the summer of 2010. And then we went on to build a bunch of the, the very earliest um, OpenStack deployments. Uh, I think the first one we did was January 2011 with, um, uh, I think it, that was even the bear release. So almost nobody had these systems in production at that time. And we did some of the earliest deployments as a professional services business, very similar to Marantis, who's a leader in the space now. Uh, in fact, at that time, a little known uh, piece of in, tidbit of information is that Marantis, the business at that time, had nothing to do with OpenStack. And in fact, the first time they started working with OpenStack was as a subcontractor to cloud scaling. <laughs> and uh, so I created my own worst enemy, one of them anyway. And um, we went on to basically pivot and turn into a product company. And um, we built some of the largest OpenStack product, OpenStack powered product deployments uh, for Fortune 15 companies like Walmart and AT&T. That's greatness. And so the the other thing that we've seen a lot of a lot of in your resume is that you've done a lot of advisory services. Um, I hate to say that you're an advisor to Nexenta, but you know that's they they need good advice. Um, you know, Cloud I was. Central. Are you, past, you past were? Okay. Yeah, part part of the deal with EMC was that I uh, resigned that position. So I was previously an advisor to Nexenta. I actually knew those guys before they had their first CEO. So my history goes back to hanging out with the founders in coffee shops in Mountain View, Silicon Valley style. And uh, so, you know, I like them. They've done a good job. Clearly, they are a competitor now. Um, and, you know, some of my other advisory roles are folks like Docker, uh, the container company, and and uh, some other things like that. Yeah, I was, I was curious about uh, 
Docker, um, you know, think, I think Humtap and Cloud Central, but also uh, I'm really curious to what, you're still, what your engagement still is as a director of OpenStack if you still hold that spot as well. So into, onto the board or any of the other portions of OpenStack and, and what you're doing there. Still a director at the OpenStack Foundation. Um, you know, obviously, I see part of my role in the OpenStack community. For those who pay any attention and you know are watching my videos and presentations, my role is a lot like it is at EMC. It's to be the disruptor and to shake the trees and to try to get people to think differently. Um, and if you uh, watch my OpenStack Silicon Valley uh, keynote this week, <laughs> I did a lot of ranting and raving on stage live in front of some of the movers and shakers in the OpenStack uh, space to try to get them to understand that you know we need to make some changes pretty seriously. Um, in terms of HumTap, it's an iOS um, an iPhone application. Really appreciate you asking about it. It was me trying to branch out. Those guys are running on the cloud like you would expect, and they wanted somebody who had a lot of experience with Amazon to kind of give them some help. It's a very cool little application where you can basically make your own music videos, uh, even if you're not a musician. And, um, you know, that's just kind of my, I'm just kind of doing that on the side. I don't spend a lot of time with those guys. I just give them some tips. That sounds and, like... That sounds like fun. I'm going to go make a music video now just because of that. So that sounds uh, please, like a lot of fun. Please do that. <laughs> and I, I think mean, we thought we had busy lives, man. We're just looking at your, your pedigree and the stuff that you're involved in today. I mean, I don't, I don't know how the hell you do it, man. You and, it's like you and Chad Sackett have this crazy drive and some sort of engine that makes you able to do you know, a bazillion things at once. It's funny you say that because I always, I always feel like I'm not doing enough stuff. <laughs> yeah, we can tell you that that's the opposite because, uh, I mean, I can barely do this podcast in my day job and you have like 14 day jobs. So, you know, just you give yourself a little bit of credit. You're doing those things. And by the way, Brent, we all know that Chad has clone has perfected cloning and there's four of him and that's how he does it. So I don't know if Randy is part of the cloning group, um, but I, I truly believe Chad has perfected cloning. It started with Dolly the sheep, right? So you're saying Chad's a clone of Dolly or the other way around? No, the technology uh, yeah. came from Dolly the sheep. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, so why don't, we, why don't we talk about technology for a little bit? Yeah, I guess we could do that. Let's, let's, let's kick it off, man. We'll do uh, This Week in Tech History. So, Randy, this is just a segment we do and uh, talk about some stuff that happened in the past during this week. Uh, so August 24th, 2011, uh, Steve Jobs resigns as Apple's CEO and passes away 43 days later. Uh, and then August 22nd, 1987, Legend of Zelda is released on um, Nintendo or NES in North America. So um, to the Apple side of the house, are you an Apple fanboy? You, I mean, you're working on the HomeTap application for iOS. My assumption is you're, you're an Apple guy, but uh, are you a fanboy, and what gear do you use today? Um. I am not going to characterize myself as a fanboy. I feel that that's derogatory. I will tell you this. I started off on uh, Unix. That was my operating system of choice. Scozenix. And I used Unix for exclusively for 20, almost 20 years. And then I was in a position where I had to use Windows laptops for about five years. And I just wanted to like shoot myself because I had to reboot them all the time. And so when uh, Apple came out and they said that they were going to have a Unix-based operating system that had a really kick-ass GUI on top of it, um, you know, it was kind of like a no-brainer because, uh, look, I might have used Unix for forever, but if you've ever compiled X11 or dealt with X11, you know what a shit show it is. I mean, you know, I'll do respect Unix, but, you know, it's just not a very good GUI. Um, so, you know, I was pretty excited to move on to a platform that had Unix underlying a fantastic GUI. So, yes, I, I, I like my Apples, and I use a I use a Apple MacBook Pro Retina for work, and I use an Apple MacBook Pro previous generation for DJing that has been hot-rotted with multiple disk drives and more RAM than it's supposed to have and all that kind of stuff, and I use uh, Apple phones. So Do you use any other any other tools like uh, you know call it the Apple Watch or any of their uh, wireless hubs or anything like that? Uh, I have graduated from their wireless hubs because they don't do what I need, um, and uh, my Apple Watch is um, uh, not in good shape, <laughs> and I have been told that it is not covered. So I am now Apple Watchless. Well, I noticed that you had a wrist tattoo, which was interesting. 
Um, being tattooed myself is one of the reasons I haven't invested in the in the Apple Watch yet is because those sensors have trouble actually picking up um, like your your I guess it's your pulse and heartbeat or whatever it may be through tattoos. Yeah, I had to wear it on the left arm. You're absolutely right. It does exist. But on that vein, do you know anybody else before me who was up on the EMC World main stage who actually had a tattoo? Visible tattoos or just tattoos? Well, it was semi-visible. It was on the wrist. It came out when I was presenting, talking. I, 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 I can't outright think of anybody. I mean, I have a feeling that maybe, you know, there's, well, I mean, Jonas has been up on the EMC World stage. I know he's got tattoos. That tramp stamp uh, doesn't count, though. Oh, knock it off! Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's got forearm tattoos too. He's got he's keeping it strong. So, do you are you are you thinking of somebody specific, or do you think you're the? I was assuming that I was first, but maybe I wasn't. No, it's uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I guess it depends. Were you were you part of a keynote, or were you part of a like an Area 52, or were you in the like in the afternoon stuff, or were you in the morning keynote stuff, or where where did you? You guys aren't watching the MC world. <laughs> I was I was there, but I mean, you know, it's uh, you get I really the, busy. I was, I was one of the keynotes. That's awesome. What day were you on? Uh, ETD was on day three. Yeah. Yeah, by then it's really hard to wake up at eight AM. You just go go sit in the lounge and try to drink a coffee and wake up because you've been out entertaining customers at night. So um I, I wonder though, I, I'm trying to remember if Jonas or anybody else. I think I would like you to meet Jonas and see his uh we are uh we are all from stars tattoo. We were just talking about that the other night, which I think is a it's a great looking tattoo. So the other part of it though, um you, you say you use Apple and stuff like that. Android is also Linux. Did you ever, I mean, do you ever fight with yourself about the fact that you want your phone to be the same operating system that you kind of live and breathe by? No, see, the, see that's the thing, right? Um, yeah, I want to tell you a story. So I had this buddy, Dagmar. Um, he, he's, st- he's still around. Um, and uh, I remember coming downstairs one time at his place to see what he was up to. And he told me a story about how he had been recompiling, you know, X11 on his laptop for three days in order to like uh, optimize it for whatever, such and such. And I just, you know, I don't know, man. I, I like sometimes people who are like the Linux people, they're like they they want to take the hammer out of the like out of the tool chest and they want to like spend time working on the hammer. I want to take the hammer out of the tool chest and use it to do stuff. Like every time I have to fix my own tools. Like it drives me crazy. I just want them to work out of the box. Sort of reminds me, like if you ever played role playing games, like you know when you're a teenager, you would like go and you'd you'd spend all the time making the character and another time playing the damn game. And it's like that. Like I just like I'm not interested in that. So I want my phone and I want my laptops to just work. And anytime they're not, it drives me crazy. And the reason is is because you know I just don't want to spend time fixing them or 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 messing with the tooling right it's the same reason that I, a lot of the time I, I'll buy a car that I can just take in for maintenance I don't want to work on the car now I'll go work on somebody else's car I'll go work on somebody else's tools I'll fix their stuff that's not that's not a problem I just don't want to work on my own that's not fun I'm with you on the not wanting to work on your own car to me my car is a uh, is a conference room with wheels and air-conditioned seats like that's those, right that's uh I just got a new one, and when the Bluetooth stack wasn't working right, I was going nuts. Luckily, uh, luckily the the manufacturer was really nice and flew somebody in from Fujitsu Ten who like figured it out. They diagnosed it and uh, pulled. You'd, you'd be amazed, by the way, IoT. You'd be amazed what the car manufacturers are tracking you on right now. Uh, one of the indicators to show up where I was having a problem was to flash my lights five times so that they could find it in the logs. So just when you flash high beams, they're logging everything. And they can go back days upon months to find that stuff. So um, I think it's all because of people who were suing, saying that they had their accelerator stuck and things like that. So now they're writing in logging for everything so they keep track of you. So you have, you have no idea when you take your car in what they might be pulling off of that, uh, that the, you know, the log files of the car itself. It's, kind it's of time to go back low tech, man. Yeah. So uh, the other part of this, it's important. This is critical. Zelda. Zelda came out this week. Are you a... Uh, are you, are you into gaming? We, th- we think you are. We're pretty sure. But are you into gaming? And if so, did you play, were, were you a Zelda person? Like, are you, do, you, do you, like, I guess associate with Zelda or did you just kind of play with it? Uh, I've, I've played a metric crap ton of games. Um, I uh, am not a Zelda person. Uh, something that's kind of more my speed is like Fallout, Fallout 3. I played the crap out of that and Skyrim and stuff like that. Um, 
you know, if you were to come, if you were to come over to, for our housewarming party this Saturday, you'll see like about three large cabinets filled with role-playing games and games from the 1980s going into the 1990s. I went on a nostalgia binge like a few years ago and just kept buying stuff off of eBay and I'm trying to get back and, and play a bunch of that stuff. Some of it's like horribly obscure. Nobody's ever heard of it, but, uh, you know, board games, you know, probably I favor a little bit more of a video games, but I play video games more because you can kind of pick them up and, and, you know, go and then stop. That's awesome. Most of the time. So I heard, I heard you correctly. I'm going to go, I'm writing it down. I'm going to be over at your house on Saturday. I assume you're in the Bay area somewhere. Yeah. You got to find it first though. Man. I <laughs> got to hack my car to figure out. <laughs> to Don't flash work. your lights five times. Yeah. Flash your lights five times. I promise I'll find you. So, uh, awesome. Let's get into it. Let's get down to business and let's, let's get down to this thing. Uh, we talked a little bit about cloud scaling in the acquisition. Um, but you know what, the whole point of all of this stuff is really people are looking at these cloud native applications and they're looking at how they can get there. Um, OpenStack is obviously a very big part of that. Um, there are also other things, you know, the pivotal conversations, what the architecture is behind it. But the big argument is, a lot of people think that they can just take what they're doing today and shove it into a container and they're good to go. They're now a platform three application. Uh, and you know, we were, we were discussing this. I saw you talking with Matt Cowger and a bunch of other people internally about this. And really what it came down to me was, you know, you're doing it wrong. There's a, there's ways to do it right and ways to do it wrong. So the first thing we want to ask you is, um, can you really, from your perspective, define P2 versus P3? When you look at it, what do you what do you see as the difference between the two? Uh, well, first, I'm going to say selfishly that I think some of the concepts around uh, the second and third platform, first, second, and third platform, come uh, even though they come from IDC. I think the IDC cribbed them from me. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I've been talking about sort of this kind of generational change that's industry wide since 2010. I think is the first deck I can find that I did on it, and I would talk about the transition from mainframe computing to enterprise computing to cloud computing, kind of like each succeeding generation. And you know, those map pretty much exactly to the IDC concepts of first, second, and third platform. And for me, you know, when I've been um, talking about second platform versus third platform and trying to help people understand it, you know, I, I did a few different things. Um, first thing I did was I tried to explain that you know, the the when you operate at a different scale for the third platform, you just inherently have to do things very, very differently. So an example of that is that. Inside a typical Google or Amazon or Facebook data center, they're they're running a single top of rack switch because once you're at scale, like you know, if a single rack goes out, you kind of don't care. And those are just really fundamental differences to what happens in the second platform where we have two of everything. The second thing I I did is I came up with this pets versus cattle meme. I was the person who kind of tried to put that together. And so what I was trying to do there was synthesize like what's the fundamental difference. And, you know, I sort of realized as I was doing some research that Bill Baker had come up with the best idea, which is kind of like, you know, you treat your services disposable in one situation versus treating them as something special. And, you know, that thing's taken off. And I think it really helps kind of get the conversation down to, you know, a 30 second soundbite, at least starts it there. And then you can have a bigger conversation. And then the last thing is that, you know, if I really get more technical about it, you know, the, the, the underlying principle I see just being fundamentally different is that in the second platform, applications basically just assume that the infrastructure is, you know, available all the time, that it's, you know, five nines or actually 100% of time, I would say, is what they assume, that it's got, you know, infinite bandwidth and infinite latency, and it just depends completely on the infrastructure for all availability and all resiliency and all data replication and redundancy. That's how the applications operate. They don't just don't take care of themselves. They assume that somebody else takes care of them. And kind of like a pet. <laughs> Excuse me. And then in the third platform, you know, the application assumes that it's on its own, that the infrastructure is unreliable, that it has to manage its own resiliency, that it has to look and see where there are failures in the system. And it's really interesting because in the second platform, it's essentially a house of cards. You know, people like to pretend that they built like, you know, enterprise grade applications that have five nines of uptime. But if you talk to most enterprises, they're lucky if they get two, two and a half nines of uptime at the application layer because as we all know failures always happen and the bigger that your IT plant is the more likely it is you are to have a failure 
third platform, Google, Amazon, Facebook, they said, hey, failures are going to happen. Let's make sure that the application detects failures and basically routes around them in real time, just like the internet works. And that's just more pragmatic, practical uh, reality. And when you do that, you can build these four, five, nine applications like Netflix and Google um, that run on to two and a half, nine infrastructure. And so that's an inversion of responsibility. The infrastructure has less or even no responsibility for uptime. And the application has it all. And that's the biggest technical difference between those two worlds that I can see. I like that uh, five nines application versus a uh, five nines infrastructure. That's pretty, that's a pretty interesting concept. Yeah, definitely. So how do, you know, a lot of our customers are definitely in the P2 space today, right? They're re relying heavily on infrastructure resilience. Um, we've been following a thread internally with the V specialists and the V specialists are, are very frequent to this show. Um, going kind of back and forth on how the transition to P3 um, can happen using things like VIO, right? So VMware's integrated OpenStack, um, and, and you've been you've been pretty hot and heavy on that on that thread. I think you've kind of bowed out here recently, but um, talk to me a bit about that discussion and and your thoughts on delving into P3, um, and then also if you should hybridize it or if you should completely segregate those stacks. Bowed out, man. I kind of felt like I did a drop the mic moment because I didn't really see anybody follow up to my last email on that. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you just said, hey, look, I'm done talking about this, right? <laughs> I've got other stuff to do. We, we've been yeah. doing this for like a week. I'm I, over it. I think Brent meant more of a formal bow rather than a, you know, hey. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I, you, I, didn't, I, you didn't tap. <laughs> yeah, no, it was one, the, no one armbarred you. Yeah, again, Brent, Brent is uh, old school, so his version of drop the mic is bow out. So, yes, I... You did say, "Hey, this is my this is my last this is my last statement on this, and this is what I believe in." Uh, and I don't think you did. I think you left a little "come at me, bro" at the end. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's it's good either way. Where 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 do you see people trying to do this right and wrong? Um, so, you know, one of the problems that I've seen cause lots of issues is when people try to put the P2 and P3 stuff together. Like, I, I see people kind of on a spectrum. You've got people who have no idea that, you know, the third platform exists. And they're just trying to get the basics done. Great example of that is Kaiser Permanente. They love the VC view block. I mean, it's amazing for them. And the, part of the reason is that they're just not very functional as an IT organization. So you know, putting together a stack of gear is actually very, you know, for a reasonable price, it's actually very challenging for them. For the, So the VBOC solves lots of problems and that, and that's fine, right? That's just where they're at in their, in their life cycle. On the other end of the spectrum, you got the lean forward guys who are going all in on the third platform like walmart.com and AT&T and they're doing everything they can to really transform their businesses. And they kind of in the middle, kind of the thick part or, or, you know, kind of beginning to become the thick parters, people who really understand the distinction, but they can't understand why they can't uh, run both third platform, second platform apps on the same plants. They want to make, you know, one single system. They're trying to, you know, kind of consolidate down to one system that runs everything, right? As sort of like, a, you know, grand unified theory of IT infrastructure inside their businesses. And, and every time they do that, I've always seen them run into problems, Wells Fargo, Amex, you know, basically because the, the architecture uh, design principles between a you know a second platform and a third platform cloud are just so different, and the cost structures are so different that you know it just you can't kind of combine them right now. I think at some point you'll be able to, but I don't think that you'll combine the architecture so much as the um, the control plane interface, right? The thing that the active application developer and operator basically talk to you to to manage the infrastructure. I think that you'll get sort of a unified control plane. We don't have that today. Um, but then under it, it'll be kind of basically two different silos, one for kind of the second platform, one for third platform. And today, there's not really a way to do a unified control plane because the expectations of people who are running predominantly second platform applications is just very different from third platform. So it's it's more it's some of it has to do with changing what people expect out of things and how they how they operate their businesses uh, before they can really kind of successfully get to that point. 
Yeah, it's the pets versus cattle thing, right? I mean, you know, in, in one model, like if you look at like sort of the View Realize Suite, VCAC and all that stuff, you know, it's just got a whole workflow and a whole way of thinking about the world that is much more kind of ITIL or kind of, you know, process oriented. You know, it's about like tracking things and having quotas and, you know, approval processes and workflows and all that stuff. Which is great because you know you've got very mature applications coming on it, and then you know if you look at third platform, you know people are expecting more like the Amazon Web Services experience, which is you know it's like an open playground. There's less controls and, and cost structures, and a lot of that stuff that has to do with sort of governance is more downstream with um, uh, with analytics and reporting that you get on the on the back end, and you have more APIs that you talk to. The systems are more dynamic, and you don't worry so much about trying to have workflows and approval processes and things like this. So where does where does um, VIO fit into fit into this? Is it is it is it a good spot for VMware customers to start dabbling in OpenStack at a very limited level? I, I think I think so. I think it's a good I think it's a good place for learning. I mean, you'll definitely see that the general process towards OpenStack is weighted heavily towards people dabbling first and trying to understand it before they kind of dive in with both feet. That's that's definitely true, and, and, and VIO might help there. I think the underlying problem, though, is still that, you know, I don't know that you can take it further from that point, because you, you kind of start to get into a situation real quick of sort of like, am I building a third platform cloud or a second platform cloud? And, you know, VMware historically has been optimized primarily for a second platform cloud, which is not to say that you can't build a third platform cloud on it. It's just that, like, all the learning people have done, all of the sort of best practices, you know, uh, use of things like fiber channel scene, all that is really kind of just very clearly in the second platform. You know, VMware is doing a lot of work around, you know, kind of reinvigorating and rethinking their stack so they can take third platform workloads. I think you could take it in if you're willing to do a lot of work, you can be it, make it be much more of a kind of third platform friendly type cloud. But you know, it's there's inherent places in there that just start to cause um, some friction if you're trying to get to the third platform on VMware, and and that's not to say again that it can't be done. It's just that it's um, it's sort of geared the other way. And so when you're seeing people, uh, you know, again back to that whole doing it wrong type of thing, right? Not just maybe not just on the infrastructure perspective, right? Uh, getting the old old type of infrastructure, the shared SAN, all that kind of stuff. Maybe in some ways that works. Maybe some ways VMware makes adjustments, or you'd you, you'd shift something to completely like OpenStack, or uh, you know where, wherever Pivotal fits into that story. But when they're taking an application a day and trying to just go, hey, I'm trying to make this P3, and they're doing it wrong. What are what what are the kind of things that you see that are people are repeating? When so you're asking when they're trying to make it to upgrade a a, pla a second platform application to a third platform application? That's correct. In other words, maybe they maybe they're trying to do things like uh, at the end of the day, I'm not going to get out of SQL, but I need to get the rest of my application onto platform three, maybe just the front end or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So where are they doing it? How are they doing that wrong compared to uh, the right ways to do those kind of things? Yeah, so first of all, you know, the process that everybody has to go through is to is to look at the second platform applications and really triage them and try to understand. I mean, there's a set of those that are fairly easily re-architected into the third platform. There's a set of those that um, could be re-platformed or you could, you know, kind of create a new th a third platform application that subsumes them. And then there's a set of them that you just, it's not going to go to the third platform. You know, it's like trying to pull your applications off the mainframe today that have been sitting there for the last 40 years. It just doesn't make sense. Just leave it there. Um, as long as it's adding business value, it's fine. Uh, and then when people have decided to re-architect, um, you know, into a third platform, there's sort of a few elements. So the first is that, you know, most of the kind of web-style applications, you know, kind of two, three-tier applications that have been designed after 1999 are already shared nothing architectures. The only place um, where they have some challenges tends to be in the in the layer with state. So the data store layer, their RDBMS is something like that. And in that case, it's pretty easy. You just transition the data store layer into a scale-out model, and you're good from an architectural point of view. And then, you know, the commonality across all of them is you need to move towards a DevOps model for how you actually... 
you know, design, build, and deploy these things. You need to have continuous integration, continuous testing, continuous deployment uh, models basically baked in hand for these applications. Because if you're not really doing that, then you're not, you know, going to force yourself into that model of continuously updating your application and, you know, building a framework that auto-deploys it, right? I mean, that's really part of what gets unlocked when you have the application manage itself and you've built a framework using Chef or Puppet or Ansible or Salt or containers or however you've done it to basically, uh, you know, what that unlocks is the ability to have all those continuous uh, process pieces in place. Um, and so, you know, you kind of have to do all those things together. And once you've done that, you know, you can kind of update a, a fair number of your uh, second platform applications to the third platform. I like it a lot. So then let's go the other direction, right? Um, you've done, you've taken P2, you've, you've re-architected, you've done the right things, you've kind of put it together, moved it over to the other, you know, moved it over to a new type of framework and a new type of thinking. Now, if you just step back and you tell, you know, a company actually makes a decision, what does it take inside a company for a tier two, you know, P2 type company where maybe they've even got silos of businesses Maybe they've decided to collapse IT and actually have cross-functional teams. Um, you know, that's even that itself. That in itself is a bit disruptive to them. How do they then do that next shift to start thinking about cloud-native applications as a team from scratch? Right, like okay, let's just set this aside and call that a sunk cost, and we're going to let it run, and then we're going to start from scratch to be able to become more agile as a business to become a cloud-native team. What kind of things are they looking at? What kind of changes do they need to make? Who needs to take over? What What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated. I mean, what I'm seeing work is that, um, you know, it's kind of a combination of the stuff that you guys have probably been talking about, about bimodal IT, right? You kind of have to carve off a part of the IT team to work exclusively on the new stuff. People who are willing to break rules, make changes, maybe no longer fo follow idle processes for a while, those kinds of things. And uh, usually that team needs to have kind of executive sponsorship. Usually it's cross-functional. You've de-siloized everything in it and you've created incentives around, um, you know, helping developers, you know, reduce their time to market internally, right? Because your focus is no longer on kind of what the second platform is about because it's matured, which is cost savings. Now your focus is on speed and agility um, and really helping, you know, the line of business uh, deliver new value as quickly as possible. So when that team is restructured like that and they can do that, and then they can go out and they can, you know, kind of build a whole new model around the infrastructure and the applications that run on top of it and then kind of build the DNA. And then I've seen sometimes that that gets subsumed back into the mainstream of the business and then sometimes the business kind of reorgs around it. So uh, for those who don't know, AT&T reorganized, uh, I think, last year and they went away from that split that the carriers all have of, between network and IT and they went to just a engineering operations and architecture, you know, three-tier um, uh, type organization and you know and that's really designed to try to help them adopt the DevOps model and take all the learning they did around their early uh, third platform deployments and drive it back into the organization. So that's where I see work. What I don't see work is when people um, are you know taking the old siloed teams and then trying to build a non-siloed system because the reality is is like as you converge all these things together, storage, networking, compute, and all that stuff. You know, you can't have the team be siloed because you're going to wind up with a lot of finger pointing and, you know, a lot of uh, system failures. And then the last thing I'll say there is that, you know, for me, when I hear DevOps in the enterprise, like I immediately think about the culture change that needs to occur more than I do the tooling, you know, that needs to happen. Because if you look at it, historically what's happened is the line of business and the application developers who are sometimes under IT, you know, they're incentivized to basically deliver new value as quickly as possible, while the centralized IT people are incentivized to manage down risk. And so they're kind of always at loggerheads, right? Line of business comes and says, I need this stuff because I need to get this app out. You know, the infrastructure guys say, well, I need to make sure you've got all of this and it follows our best practices and, you know, it's going to take this many months and this many millions of dollars. And, you know, really the line of business wants to go right now. And so that's why there's been such a big flight with shadow IT to places like Amazon Web Services because they can't get that experience inside the business. So DevOps in the enterprise from culture perspective is about changing that dysfunctional uh, lack of alignment and making sure that both the centralized IT teams and the line of business application developers are incentivized to basically generate new value for the business first 
and then secondarily manage down risk. So both of those things are still important, but the prioritization is on the new value, not managing down risk. Yeah, and, and certainly the, the first step uh, to DevOps is, is automation, right? Uh, so a, a big, you know, you're obviously a big proponent and backer of things like OpenStack. So talk to me about uh, how OpenStack is going to fit into the P3 landscape. I see. I see OpenStack, you know, as having started off as being kind of, you know, a knockoff of Amazon Web Services, the canonical third platform cloud, and you know, that's really its lineage, and it's really been trying to be the world's best third platform cloud. Yes, you know, there are people who try to go and make it do unholy things, and they try to make it be more kind of second platform friendly, and you know, that's fine. They can go do that. You know, I I think that. Nothing will ever be as good as VMware in that realm, so I don't know why people are spending so much time on it. But, hey, it's an open source project. Do what you will. Um, so, you know, I always think of OpenStack as sort of the ideal behind-the-firewall uh, third-platform uh, private cloud for enterprises that they can use sort of the baseline, you know, put everything on top of it. You see this kind of trend inside the, the carriers today as well where, you know, they think about network function virtualization and historically all of their network services, SMS, MMS, voicemail, all that stuff, have each run on their own infrastructure silo. And in just doing that, having all those different silos just destroys them from an economics point of view, an operational overhead point of view and things like that. You know, uh, Korea Telecom, when I went in there, they were running five, I think it was roughly five servers per IT administrator. <laughs> and you compare that to something like Google is running 10,000 or trying to get to 100,000, you know, that's 100,000 servers per admin. That's just, you know, it's just night and day. And part of the way that you can get there is automation. But the other way is having a relatively homogenous environment, right? The heterogeneity inside the enterprise has really made it challenging to um, to drive down operational costs. And so what OpenStack brings is the ability to have a single relatively homogenous kind of think of it as a power plant that provides power to a whole bunch of next generation apps that all run on that single stack. And so that's where it started on the infrastructure layer. And now it's starting to have more of the platform as a service elements, it's not platform as a service, but elements, you know, relational database as a service, uh, service catalogs as a service, those kinds of things that can then be composed into higher order applications. So, you know, it's interesting, uh, again, as a director of, of at OpenStack, uh, helping out with the project, um, you're very, very vocal in terms of uh, what you think the technology is good at, bad at, and what its future is. Um, and, and you said that it, OpenStack doesn't stand a chance as far as public cloud is concerned because AWS and Google have already won that race, but OpenStack has not failed. So can you elaborate on that on that comment? Yeah, and I think in the early days a lot of folks, you know, were under the impression that OpenStack, you know, kind of could come out as sort of an alternative standard to these, you know, walled gardens in the public cloud space and that you'd have OpenStack in the public cloud and you have OpenStack in the private cloud. And I, I think the fundamental difference is that to a certain degree, you know, what Amazon and Google and, um, you know, Microsoft Azure are is they're less kind of on-demand services and they're more development engines. You know, as they've gotten bigger, they've actually sped up. There's, I don't know what was announced that was a new feature on Amazon today, but I can tell you that new features were announced today. Like it's gone from once every quarter to once every month to once every week to once every day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's kind of stunning when you, when you try to wrap your head around it. Now, the OpenStack community, you know, the pro and the con of it is that, you know, it's a democratic meritocracy. And so what that means is that, you know, there's a lot of people around trying, you know, a lot of chefs in the kitchen trying to, like, cook the soup. So everybody gets to participate. That's great. But, you know, the speed at which the, uh, the OpenStack community operates actually doesn't speed up as it gets bigger. It slows down. There's a lot more uh, political processes and things that you have to follow. And, and I don't think that's bad. You know, it's kind of like our own democratic process that we're watching today on TV pretty much every day. You know, it's messy and that's okay. And But you just have to realize you get a different outcome. So I think that OpenStack ultimately is better off, you know, focusing on a private cloud where those guys aren't ever going to play. And the reality is, is that if you went and you stacked up, you know, Amazon Web Services and Azure and Google and you looked at their total number of customers, total amount of revenue and market share, 
that OpenStack in the public cloud is, you know, a drop in the bucket next to it and not growing at nearly the same speed. So th th there's no way to change. There's no way to change that. It's very rare that you see someone who's got massive market dominance who just got it, like literally just got their dominance being, you know, overturned, you know, um, from behind. It happens, but it, it it's just very rare. And so when you talk about development engines, is there a, um, you know, there's obviously Amazon has its thing, Google has its thing. Do you feel like, uh, you know, having brought, been brought into the fold, do you feel like, you know, Cloud Foundry has its spot where Cloud Foundry plus OpenStack can be disruptive, not only from the enterprise space, but also helping people put things on, on clouds without, maybe with less friction on the lock-in? Uh, you know, when, when you talk about being able to move from one cloud to another? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one of the promises of, of Cloud Foundry. I always think about Cloud Foundry or sort of that general category of platform as a service, enterprise platform as a service, is sort of being kind of like Java Containers 2.0. So I don't know if people remember, but like WebSphere and WebLogic in the in the late '90s, kind of early aughts, you know, that was the tool that you used to help your non-web savvy developers build web applications. And so you'd build kind of like a siloed static infrastructure. You'd put you know Tomcat or WebSphere or WebLogic up on that infrastructure, and then all the developer had to know is like, here's my jar file or war file, and you know, I I, I give it to the con the container management system, and it turns it on. And well, you know, kind of fast forward and we have things like Cloud Foundry, which, you know, basically can take any kind of code into them and they're not constrained to Java, but then they also have all the smarts to understand that they're running on a more dynamic infrastructure that has APIs that they can control and manage. So you don't have to have a static environment for them anymore, kind of build their own silo. They can just drive whatever's underneath them. So you kind of get this very standardized set of rails that the developers can go down on so they don't have to be scale out experts. And so I do think that's a, like a really important way that the enterprise will be able to adopt and move towards the third platform. I think it does abstract a lot of the underlying infrastructure as a service to a point. Um, and I, then I think that you know what would be nice is that if we actually had standards at the in, under for the underlying infrastructure, so that something like Cloud Foundry could take that level of abstraction to the next place. And there are efforts to do to try to do some of that um, at the container level, but there are, there are always inherent limitations. Like the more different that the infrastructure is, the harder it is to um, uh, to get things exactly right. So I, I'll give an example from my own personal experience. So like I can take my Mac laptop from the United States to the Philippines, where my wife is from, and and you know that that you know the the power works right. I got a power brick that does the adaptation and all that. But I sit there all day long touching my laptop and basically taking little shocks because the de facto normal for how power is installed in the homes in the Philippines is without ground, huh. right? Same power, <laughs> but there is an underlying architectural difference. And so you will see that a lot of time that the PASs can only do so much to, to, to keep you from seeing the differences between like an Amazon and OpenStack deployment. So you still kind of at some point, uh, depending on your application and the workload, you, you, ideally you would have an underlying infrastructure that was common everywhere. And so, is there a is there one? Uh, you know, you, if you're if you're trying not to put your all your eggs in one basket, is there is there one that can do that to can do that for you today? No, I mean that that's really the problem is that um, there you know the. The public clouds are walled gardens. They have little or no incentive to try to build a standardized deployment. The open state folks would tell you that that's really their role in life. But at the same time, we've done, you know, little or nothing in the past five years to basically create, you know, a standardized OpenStack deployment. This is part of my rant at the OpenStack Silicon Valley uh, conference this week is, you know, it's just not happening. Like people like to talk about it and we're doing some stuff called a project called DefCore, which is defining a common set of capabilities for the core, but um, it's just not there. And, you know, it's sort of like OpenStack's like a whole bunch of Legos, and you can use it to build anything. And so everybody does. You know, they take the Legos out of the box, and they're like, oh, shiny. And then they go, and they, you know, basically build their own thing. And, and you know, it's not every choice that you make, you know, what kind of hypervisor you use, what kind of networking stack you use, what kind of storage you use, you know, all the options about how the network is configured, every single thing uh, creates the risk of creating a snowflake. So, you know, most OpenStack deployments are incompatible with each other. Now, that being said, you know, one of the things that cloud scaling did was we tried to make our deployments uniform. It was good and bad. You know, it was good in that 
you know, pretty much all of our uh, deployments worked out of the box. Like I just had one of our uh, customers, Lithium, uh, who's no longer with us now because of the acquisition, but, you know, they were telling me at the Silicon Valley, uh, at the conference that I went to, they were telling me how awesome cloud scaling was because it just worked. And they didn't have that experience with their other OpenStack vendors. So we had a standardized deployment model, but on the other hand, so many customers who come to OpenStack, they feel like, oh, it's open source. I should have my choices. I should be able to make it my way. So like the choices that the customer wants because they feel that they're special and unique lead them down the path of making a snowflake. And it's just kind of where the market's at at the moment. I think it's really bad for everybody, the customers, the vendors, and so on. So one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take some of the DEF core work in OpenStack, and I have a small team that's actually working towards having a... Uh, interoperability test suite that will work across OpenStack and other public clouds, which a lot of the OpenStack people for some reason don't like. But the idea there is that we might be able to have some basic interoperability testing so you could test that your OpenStack deployment worked more or less like Amazon Web Services. And then perhaps you could make the choices to configure it so that it passed more of the tests and was more Amazon Web Services interoperable and compatible which would then reduce some of those some of that variability for the higher order parts of the stack. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna shift gears here a little bit, Randy, uh, but still in the same vein of, of you know open source kind of DevOps and, and automation. So in 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 the realm of automation, I notice on GitHub that you contribute to uh, the Salt project. Uh, so you know Salt is you know like Puppet, Chef, Ansible. Um, why did you pick Salt? In particular, to contribute to, and and do you think that those other, you know, the other products, right, Puppet Chef, Ansible, have a place, or is one a different tool for a different job? <laughs> um, so I have to tell you a story there, unfortunately. So the the very first uh, tech startup I did, um, I was um, taking this open source tool that nobody had heard of at the time called Puppet, and I think it was December two thousand six ish. And, um, you know, the size of the community at that time was about the number of people who are on IRC, maybe 30, 50 people total. And um, I was building an orchestration system around it so that I could define an interior um, web application and basically automatically deploy it onto this system called Amazon Web Services Elastic Compute Cloud, which was in private beta at that time. You could, the only service you could get was a 1.7 gig RAM, one core VM for 10 cents an hour. That was it. No DNS, no VPC, no EBS, you know, pretty much no, no, no other services except for S3. And uh, so I was building this orchestration system around Puppet in the very early days. Um, and then I transitioned from Puppet to Chef. I spent a lot of time with the Ops Code guys. The Ops Code CTO was on my advisory board for cloud scaling. All of the cloud scaling provisioning system was geared around Chef. So uh, deep expertise with both of those systems. And then, you know, Salt's something I just started playing with recently for some of my DJ project stuff. And, um, you know, I don't, I think it's, I think it's kind of dumb to be ideological about these things. It's kind of like being ide ideological about a programming tool. Like if you can't, if you're a programmer and you can't write in multiple languages, you're, you're a crappy programmer. You're just a terrible programmer. And if you're a systems guy and you can't, you know, make Chef, Puppet, or Ansible, or Salt work, then you're a terrible systems guy. You're just awful. Like, I'm sorry, you are. <laughs> like, these things should not be religious, right? You use the right tool for the job. You know, there are some differences in these tools um, that, you know, matter. There's less differences between Chef and Puppet than there used to be. I could give you the whole backstory on why Chef came about and why there was a split in the Puppet community. Um, but the things that were the complaints that we had, you know, Luke basically actually fixed after Chef got traction. So there's less difference between those two tools than there has been in the past. I think Ansible and Salt actually take fairly different approaches. They're solving the same problem, but they're different enough approaches that they're valid for certain things. And then the general problem I see in the configuration management space, and part of why you see people using containers as an alternative to configuration management, is that sometimes this stuff is like overwrought. Like, I just... Like if I'm going to do like a three to four, you know, server system, like writing lots and lots of like Chef and Papa code to like make that work is pretty, pretty painful. Like I can do it in less bash scripts. I can make my bash scripts idempotent. I can check them into GitHub. <laughs> so, you know, I can do it, you know, that way. So I think that that's a challenge. So I think at the low end, a lot of these tools are like 
too much overhead. And at the high end, like you'd be crazy to do it in bash scripts. Like you absolutely need these tools because it's the only way to manage, you know, hundreds of servers at a time. And you, you kind of made me think about something here. It's going to blend the conversation we're talking about right now with, with infrastructure management and configuration management versus um, the actual infrastructure as a service and all that with, you know, in, in, in also combining the fact that you're an advisor to Docker. So with the, you know, the kind of, I don't know, Docker's the new hot sexy, right? The container in general is the new hot sexy. And I understand you can run OpenStack inside of Docker. You can run Docker inside of Docker, and you can run a container on top of OpenStack and even on top of Pivotal in certain cases. So is is the container the thing that helps people um, be able to move their workload between snowflakes? Does it become the, the killer kind of thing that helps people be able to do that? It's probably got its own set of problems and its own its own issues, but does it does it help bridge that gap where multiple different personas of, of cloud, you can now move your stuff around? Containers all the way down instead of turtles all the way down? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I'm probably going to be controversial here. I, I don't think containers do a lot for um, portability. They do a lot for mobility. They're they're more a packaging mechanism than a, an abstraction of the underlying system. And I think that's hard for people to swallow because they really want it to be a portability mechanism. But the reality of the situation is is that you know if you design you know your system in a certain way like say for example you design your system so that your all of your web tier has a front end network interface and a back end network fit interface and you did that for security reasons or whatever you ran it on vSphere like if you go and you pick all that stuff up whether it's in a container or a vm or whatever and you put on another system that doesn't support two network interfaces on a single vm or container you have a, a fundamental problem like the architecture is now different and this is part of what i was saying about sort of that that normalized underlying infrastructure you know you you can only solve things you know to a certain degree with containers they don't really abstract or manage away uh, the underlying infrastructure, they really, if, if, if they abstract anything, they abstract the operating system. They give you a way to have sort of mobility of the application to kind of say, like, here's my app code, here are all its dependencies. I can pick them all up and I can replicate them and I can, you know, put them in, you know, a hundred different places all at once. But, you know, just putting something in a bunch of different places, it doesn't deal with, you know, differences in this underlying system. If one place has SSDs and the other has, you know, disk drives, then I'm going to have a 10 to 100x difference in IOPS. Like there, there's like there's nothing that a container can do to to make that different, right? There's nothing it can do to make that better, um, and so I think that is where I get in a lot of trouble sometimes with the container guys because that there's a lot of sort of like pretending that like containers uh, provide application portability and they don't. You know, going back to the Cloud Foundry discussion, something like the higher order passes, which are usually built on top of containers, they do much much more to abstract the underlying infrastructure. They have you know models around the way that they do the networking, how they do storage, and so there's kind of like a, a more of an opinion baked in. But containers themselves have little or no um, opinion baked into them. Okay. And that, I, I mean, I, I actually like the fact that you have a controversial opinion, opinion around it, right? This, the whole point of this is to, for people to have conversations uh, and to, to bring things up. And frankly, I hope it brings a bunch of feedback so that somebody else can come up here and argue their perspective. So the other really critical thing that you've said a couple of times now that we have to focus on here is the fact that you are uh, into DJing EDM. So I don't I don't like that term. I do not like that. Okay, acronym. music EDM. in general. I I I'm gonna go okay. with EDM. You cannot like my term, and I, you're gonna just gotta, all right. You have to accept it at this point. So I, I do it your <laughs> podcast. <I'll laughs> so, but actually, you know, you actually mentioned. I mean, it, to me, I mean, so EDM is certainly its own thing, but there's a lot of different things. You mentioned that you even liked uh, certain things. I thought it was even tr maybe trap, but. Um, Tell me, you know, why why are you DJing? Or do you need a little bit extra money? Is it like you don't want to stay up late at night? What's going on there? Uh, well, in my twenties, which is a while ago now, um, you know, I spent a lot of my time, formative time, uh, going to underground raves and house parties, um, probably once a month, maybe twice a month, and uh, for about I don't know, ten years, ninety two to two thousand two, something like that. And uh, you know, it just uh, was an important part of my life. And uh, I got into DJing at that time, 
And I was doing a bunch of underground parties, you know, 500 people kind of, you know, Renegade style at different places where I would DJ and bring the sound system and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I um, just really enjoyed that. And then I kind of got out of it and focused mostly on IT for a while. And then, you know, after the acquisition, I really wanted to get back because, you know, things have changed so dramatically. People don't spin on vinyl anymore. It's way more of a technical, technological game. And so I was excited to get back into it again and and uh and so that's what happened and so i've got you know this whole kind of like rig that i've been working on that's got some tractor in it for djing but then i'm using a tool called beats which is an open source kind of library management tool and i'm running that with a bunch of processing tools on top of google compute engine so that i can like get tracks and i can bring them in and i can translate them to different formats and then categorize them automatically and then triage them on my phone when I'm working out or whatever, and then you know basically figure out what tracks I want to put into my DJ library. So it's it's a lot more technical, and it's just it's more fun to get back in because I I love music and I lo- I listen to a lot of different stuff. And you know what's in my library now that I'm really working on is you know my love and passion is house music, especially West Coast house music. But I'm also I'm trying to get learn how to be a, a drum and bass DJ, and then go back to some of my roots and trip hop and down tempo acid jazz stuff. And then uh, also hip hop and reggae because my wife's a big reggae fan, so I got to make sure I spin that. And then of course, you know, some people like '80s, and you know, who who wasn't like a, 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 a well, maybe Michelle my age here, but I'm you know, I was born of the '80s MTV era, and so you know, when I hear that stuff, I love it. So I've I've got pretty much everything, and you know, I'm not playing out yet. Um, darn you, Martin Casado at VMware, you were supposed to have me spin your VMware party, but you didn't. Um, but uh, you know, but I, um, I, you know, I don't know if I'm like old enough to stay up all night anymore and I got a baby on the way, so that's not going to happen. But I am hoping to start putting stuff on SoundCloud and really kind of like um, trying to do some really fun things with my rig soon here. Cool, man. Well, congratulations on the baby, by the way. I did see that uh, on Twitter. I just personally had a baby uh, on the 1st of August, so I'm awesome. on maternity leave right now. Good man. Thanks yeah. for doing the podcast with me. <laughs> of course, dude. But, you know, so I'm a pretty prolific uh, YouTuber, and uh, I follow a guy who uses the launch pad, uh, Masonic, I think is his name. Um, and the, the, the launch pad is sick. I don't know if you've, you've seen it, um, but it's just amazing. Do you have it? You have someone sitting in front of you? I got to Google it now. Launch yeah. Pad. It's pretty sick. A DJ tool? Yeah. So basically, you program each button. Oh yeah, this is like some of the new MIDI can like MIDI controllers. Yeah, like yeah, the MIDI fiber. Yeah, insane. Watch it, Masonic. Um, awesome yeah. video. She does a cool like Skrillex remixes, but it's all it's all like playing a piano, but on a huge kind of keyboard, and it plays all these different sounds. Um, yeah. But, uh, just, what do you what do you typically use, man? Are you a Pioneer guy, a Denon guy? What's your what are your tools of the trade? Well, I'll turn the I'll turn the video camera so you can see kind of. Oh wow, that's my rig over there. See that? Yeah, so you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna broadcast the video. You even asked us not to, and that's why uh, Brent's in his underwear. Uh, but that is like a full on that's a full on rack of like a, a thirty rack, inch yeah. TV and a keyboard and a bunch of stuff there. So um, yeah. that's pretty impressive. So Allen yeah. Heath X one mixer and then uh, tractor controllers uh, X one F one and Z one, and that's just what I have for today. I'm I'm kind of getting back into it. I still have like a stack of vinyl over there in the corner. I'm trying to figure out how to. <laughs> get, you'll you'll be my real hero if you go figure out how to get an eight oh eight and put it in there or something. No, but, you know I just I've used that gear. It's very arcane, man. It's easier now to go get the eight oh eight patches and samples and load them <laughs> into like. A modern tool like i don't want to spend all the time like like a 303 for example like my understanding i never spent a lot of time with them but my understanding for people who've used them a lot is like mostly they just make horrible noises and so you wind up kind of being in the church of 303 where you learn the exact magic incantations to make it make something a usable sound and i don't want to spend my time on that <laughs> um, but you'll be my yeah. new favorite hero go ahead uh, yeah, so that that's my rig, and it, you know the thing that's that's cool is I don't know if you guys have seen this, but they have this new audio format called Stems. Have you seen this thing? No. no. So what Stems are is you know most of this music is mixed down. It's like multi-track. Right? You got the drums on one track. You got you know uh, the harmonies or melodies on another track. You got snares on another track, etc. Uh, Stems doesn't do the mix down, so you can use some of these modern tools, and you can just put in like the kick drums from like a track 
all by themselves without having to touch the EQ. You could like put in the vocals. So this is like just starting to come out now. So like DJing is going to get even more interesting because you could take like two tracks, you know, a hip hop track and a drum and bass track, and you could like just take the vocals out of the hip hop track and stick it on top of the drum and bass track with little or no friction, like huh. trivially. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's going to be very cool. So you'll, you you and maybe even Brent, I didn't know you were such a, a, a DJ nerd as well, but uh, you know, you... You'll be my my true hero if you go see Pitch Perfect two, and at one point she's playing with some she's playing with some tool in the in the DJ lab that she's working at or whatever, and she's playing with some tool and it has lights and she makes a whole song with Snoop Dogg and it's totally fake, but I I, I need to know what that thing is and I need to add it to my 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 DJ collection of nothing. I want is that, that that little bricks, the little square bricks that you turn it's, over? It's literally you... a pad. It's flat. It looked like it had about 16 buttons on it. The buttons look like they light up. Um, all I can say is go watch Pitch Perfect 2. It is the best movie ever besides Pitch Perfect. Um, oh, my God. So stop. Stop it, Brent. Well, anyways, <laughs> as, I've, as I've crashed the show, and uh, good news is time is up. Um, Randy. Thank you so much for joining us. You, you've uh, enlightened us, and you know I love I love the debate around um, you know kind of the P two to P three movement and how people can do it, and frankly how people are doing it wrong. Um, so it's been it's been quite a bit of fun, um, Brent. You know why don't we uh, why don't we take this thing out? Yeah, good idea, man. Because we are nearing the top of our hour. So, Randy, what's what's the best way to get a hold of you? You're very social and out there. You've got Twitter. You've got GitHub. You've got blogs. You've got I mean, just kind of tell us what's the easiest way to, to ping you. Uh, is Randy Bias at all those things? Twitter, LinkedIn, GitHub, SoundCloud, you know, every social media thing. It's just Randy Bias, all one word. Okay. And then your blog is still cloudscaling.com. Uh, except for my blog, yes. It's cloudscaling.com slash blog. All right. Are you going to change that anytime soon or are you going to just keep it that, that way? EMC wants to keep it that way. They're actually okay. going to make that a semi-official blog. I'm, I'm actually working on a very exciting thing where I'm going to make that blog open source and have it all checked into GitHub and stuff and, uh, you know, kind of radically transform how it looks in, 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 uh, soon. Okay. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah. yeah actually, you- uh, Matt Calger powers his, uh, his, I think it's Exaforge or I don't know if it's his other blog, but he powers it fully off of GitHub. I think he's one of, uh, actually a couple of people I know that do that. So. Yeah, yep. if, if, if uh, for, for the listeners out there, go to Randy's blog and read, I think it's your latest post, Cloud, You're Doing It Wrong. It's a great read, some great insights into the industry and what's going on and, and why you're doing it wrong. But any, anyway, Randy, thank you again uh, for being on the hot aisle today. My name is Brent Piotti. And my name is Brian Carpenter. And Thanks. we will see you guys next week. <laughs>